lecture is advertised as Buddhism. Uh, that has probably puzzled you as it puzzled me, uh, because it's a rather large subject, and how does one tackle that sort of size of subject, like, say, talk about democracy for one hour, or talk about, talk about the, the, the ecosphere for one hour. Um, and the reason that I was asked to give this talk is that fairly recently I retired um, in autumn 2004, and on retirement, after having taught Buddhism in the university, although it was not my official subject, uh, but that's typical Oxford, having taught <coughs> Buddhism um, for <coughs> uh, um, nearly 40 years, uh, I realized that on my retirement there would be nobody left, nobody teaching it. And so uh, I founded something called the Oxford Center for Buddhist Studies, OCBS. Uh, with the help of a former pupil of mine who had just taken retirement as a management consultant. Uh, uh, he's called Jeff Bamford. And the OCBS was founded by us. It's now a recognized independent center of Oxford University um, and so far has been run on a shoestring, namely Jeff's and my money. Um, now, uh, we did this partly because, after all, there already was uh, an Oxford Center for Hebrew Jewish Studies, an Oxford Center for Islamic Studies, and an Oxford Center for Hindu Studies. And there wasn't exactly a need for an Oxford Center for Christian Studies because uh, Oxford was a center for Christian Studies for a very long time and hasn't entirely stopped being so. <coughs> so we, we have founded this new institution, and I'm going to talk about that a certain amount, and talk about Buddhism a certain amount, and other things that come up along the way. And I think the only sensible way of coping with this situation, in which I have no idea of your expectations, perhaps even you don't have much idea of your expectations, is for me to talk for 35 to 40 minutes and leave a lot of time for questions. Um, and then I can expand on aspects of the subject which interest you when you ask questions. So I hope you will ask me questions, and there are no holds barred. You can ask any sort of question you like, provided it's got some remote relationship to Buddhism. <laughs> well, Buddhism, as I've already indicated in a way, certainly in the British education system was something of a Cinderella subject. <laughs> and I was, uh, on the one hand, there are really three world religions in terms of their um, historical depth and their spread across the globe and the numbers of adherents. And in order of age and indeed in order of magnitude until fairly recently, magnitude in the sense of number of adherents, those three religions are Buddhism, Christianity, and Islam. And Buddhism, uh, Christianity and Islam are all religions with founders, with distinct founders, and uh, distinct doctrines, although how those doctrines are conveyed <coughs> varies rather, because Christianity and Islam depend very much on a single book, even if there's some contestation of the edges about what, about what exactly counts as that book, it certainly is Christianity, and in Buddhism, it also 
uh, has its doctrines in books, but it's a very old religion. It's spread across many countries very early, and the books which count as the most important ones differ enormously from one Buddhist country to another, which makes it quite different from the other two, and very, very difficult to put into a nutshell for pedagogic or any other purposes. But Buddhism started um, in northeast India, and the founder was called the Buddha, which means the enlightened one, or literally the one who has woken up, it's a title. And he lived for 80 years, and the, there are many, in the Buddhist traditions, there are many datings of the Buddha, they vary enormously, but modern historians have settled down roughly to the 6th or 5th century BC, and I have claimed to have definitively discovered the, de the uh, dates of the Buddha. Um, part of that discovery is that because of the very uh, imprecise nature of the calendar in those days, you, you can't be extremely precise, but he would have died sometime 405, 404, 403 BC. And that is the very important, whether or not I'm completely right, and so far that date has been in the public arena for 20 years and nobody has produced a good argument against it. Whether or not it is completely correct, it is very important for our entire study of ancient India and indeed for large parts of the ancient world because it would be the earliest fixed date that everything else, you see, we know that things were contemporary with the Buddha before him or after him, but that date would be of crucial importance. So let's say he died around 400 BC, and I am quite prepared to claim that study of what the Buddha thought, or what, he, or what the Buddha taught, should form part of the basic education of every school child in the world if we are seriously interested in the history of human thought and history of civil, human civilization. Mind you, this has nothing to do with belief or religion. I think that the Buddha ranks with Plato and Aristotle <coughs> as one of the... Uh, <coughs> I wish to exclude other candidates. But he ranks with Plato and Aristotle as one of the great thinkers of the ancient world, that he had extraordinarily interesting, worthwhile, uh, sophisticated, uh, and partly persuasive thought. Let me immediately say that I am not a Buddhist. I don't accept all of the Buddha's arguments myself, but I certainly admire them, and I admire what the Buddha taught and thought and find it a very impressive edifice. So, Buddhism existed uh, in the first place in Northeast India, and then there was a great emperor in India in the middle of the third century BC who left a good many inscriptions which, has, which survive and are dated, but only dated in terms of his own reign, not on, in a wider chronology. Um, he was called the Emperor Asoka, he, as he announces in one of his inscriptions, converted to Buddhism, and he started sending out missionaries to countries just around India, notably 
in Nepal and Sri Lanka. And so Buddhism spread very soon into those countries. Several hundred years later, it began to spread into China. The first translations of Buddhist texts into Chinese were in the late second century AD. <coughs> AD. So that's about, that's more than half a millennium after the death of the Buddha. But Buddhism became extremely important in China for several centuries thereafter. It very soon spread from China to Korea, where it has had a continuous history ever since. And from Korea, it went on to Japan around 600 AD. And of course, Buddhism is very much the majority religion of the Japanese to this day. And uh, it also went somewhat later, indeed. It went from Sri Lanka into Southeast Asia. And it, in the 7th, 8th, and 8th centuries, it went up into Tibet. So that a very, very large swathe of Asia became Buddhist. And however, it was overtaken in some of those countries by Islam. Now, in India itself, Buddhism did very well until about 1200 AD. <coughs> now that means that Buddhism was important in India for 1,600 years. And it didn't immediately completely die out in 1200 AD. Uh, the reasons for, for its dying out, in, more or less dying out in India, are not totally clear, but certainly it's very important that there were Islamic invasions, and the Islamic invasions uh, destroyed monasteries, killed monks, and uh, under, undercut Buddhism institutionally very much. I just want to emphasize, though, the length of its stay in, in India, where, of course, it coexisted at various times with other religions, but it was very important in India, till 1280. Now, that's 800 years ago. And we said it was in India for 1600 years, so over two-thirds of the time, for, for two-thirds of the time, since the, between the Buddha and now, Buddhism was a major, sometimes the major, religion in India. So you see, it was a very large-scale phenomenon. As for China, in the 1930s, before the terrible things that happened with the Japanese invasion and then the communists and so on, it's reliably estimated that Buddhist monks and nuns alone in China, never mind the laity, Buddhist monks and nuns alone counted a good half million people. There were a good half million Buddhist monks and nuns in the 1930s. Um, Mao finally reduced this figure to something like eight. <laughs> I mean, some tiny, tiny figure, because people were either killed or forced to disrobe. But a new phase in the history of Buddhism is, I think, about to start. We all know, of course, there's been, there's been so much in the news that the Chinese behave very brutally to the Tibetans and towards their form of Buddhism. And yet, it won't be the first time in history that the conquered have had a kind of uh, revenge on the conquerors in the sense that a great many Chinese, it seems, are now taking to Tibetan forms of Buddhism. Especially the Chinese in Sichuan and those parts of China which are close to Tibet. And they're finding it extremely interesting. But not only in Sichuan, for instance, Tibetan Buddhism is becoming very fashionable in Taiwan. 
So the situation keeps on changing and moving. Now all this shows you that uh, the study of Buddhism is indeed quite large and a difficult, a difficult subject. When I was an undergraduate, um, having read, I read classics, I came up to Oxford in 1957, and in 1959 I decided I'd been reading classics long enough, um, or at least Western classics long enough, and I decided I would like to study Sanskrit, and the sacred language of the earliest texts which survive of Buddhism is Pali, the language derived from Sanskrit, and so I studied Sanskrit with Pali. But there was nobody in Oxford who specialized in Pali and nobody who taught Buddhism. And I had not your typical Oxford experience exactly because um, <laughs> the only teacher of Sanskrit, Professor Burrow, was on sabbatical leave part of the time that I was, uh, I was taking my BA in Sanskrit. And a very nice Indian gentleman from Calcutta uh, who was working with him on the Ethnographic Survey of Indian Languages uh, was over in, uh, in Oxford and except when he was so excited by seeing snow for the first time that he stayed at home to celebrate, uh, he came in and gave me some tutorials until I discovered that he was giving tutorials very much in the traditional Indian manner which was that he was dictating to me the concepts of the first pages of the grammar. So we decided we didn't go on with that. I still remember him saying, however, to me very charmingly, is the name of your village? Wood, I think. <laughs> uh, so, um, anyway, it is to him that I owe my first steps in the language. But when it came to being examined for the BA, Oxford obviously had considerable trouble, and they found an eccentric, a famous scholar, I should add, a refugee from Germany, well known then and after his death too for his extreme eccentricity, um, which is a polite way of putting it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I had to be examined in Buddhism, and he sent me a paper, of course, we had never met. He had not the foggiest idea what I might have read or studied. Uh, I remember that when I read the question paper, I blenched, because I had not the foggiest idea what 10 out of the 12 questions meant, or what they were about. They were, you would compare this sect and that sect, and I'd never heard of either of them. <laughs> but somehow, he obviously felt that somebody who had been so bold as to study, uh, as to choose Buddhism as a subject that Oxford deserved to be encouraged. And so I was given a, a first-class mark on that paper. This <laughs> <laughs> is absolutely true, but I, I must say, I tried to be a little more honest in my marking uh, since that time. Uh, at that time, though, there was no post in any British university for teaching Buddhism. No, and indeed, uh, I don't think, I mean, Oxford was so flexible that you were allowed to, but you see, even religious, religious studies, as we come to take it for granted in the modern university syllabus, didn't really exist in Britain. That was invented, invented by Ninian Smart around 1970 at Lancaster. And so, uh, even, you couldn't even take it as an optional paper in, in theology, which is how it first got into the syllabus in Oxford. Uh, you had to just sort of get permission to do your own thing, so to speak. Well, I'm, not, I'm quite sure, actually, that these days 
that kind of uh, individual enterprise would not be permitted by the authorities. It wouldn't meet the various criteria, quantification, uh, audits, and so on of the university system. And had I been under that regime, I could never have been allowed to study Buddhism or become what I suppose we now call a Buddhologist. Um, I think the, the sort of a, of a disorganized and chaotic flexibility had a good deal to be said for it. So gradually, I mean, we do, of course, nowadays, as I'm sure you will have heard during this alumni weekend, we complain a lot, and we are right to complain about being starved of funds and cuts. But in a way, of course, that is a little misleading, because suddenly, religious studies, including Buddhist studies, began to burgeon, and several British universities opened departments of Call either religious studies or, in, in case of Bristol, even Buddhist studies. Uh, and that was a very good thing because then, of course, some of my pupils could get jobs. Uh, and um, I think this also had a great deal to do with the changing ethnic composition of this country. <coughs> Not that we had very many Buddhist immigrants, but we did, after all, have Muslim immigrants, Hindu immigrants, and Sikh immigrants. And people felt we couldn't quite leave the Buddhists out. So uh, it completely changed the scene. Um, and of course, religious studies began to be taught in the British school system in the 1970s. Uh, and then you could, you know, it was institutionalized. You could take papers, O level, A level, or whatever, uh, in these subjects. And that led on to university. Um, Oxford, however, moves on slowly. And there's never been yet a degree in Buddhist study. There will be, however, because uh, when I became Buddhist professor of Sanskrit, as I did, and started teaching Buddhism, I made sure that, uh, well, I encouraged people to take it. And I rather flagrantly ignored the fact that I didn't have any colleague time to do about Tibetan Buddhism, or Chinese Buddhism, or Japanese Buddhism. I just somehow plowed ahead. Um, and you could study Buddhism under me using the languages of Pali or Sanskrit, of course not yet Tibetan. But then we managed to get Tibetan in Oxford just a few years ago, and that's moved on. And also I cultivated the Japanese, the only Buddhist country, I'm afraid, likely to become donors in the field, and indeed they did. They have a very, uh, a very, some very generous foundations in Japan. There's one called Bukyo uh, Dendo Kyokai, the Society for the Promotion of Understanding Buddhism. And they, it's, it's so, I can say it so quickly, it took 15 years to bring it about. Uh, they have founded a chair at Oxford University in Buddhist Studies, the first holder of that chair will be arriving next week. He's a lady uh, born in Croatia, but now in California. And uh, this will be the first endowed chair in Buddhist studies in Europe, in the whole of Europe. So that, that is a kind of, of progress. Now, the aim of founding the Oxford Center for Buddhist Studies has, of course, been to promote Buddhist studies in every possible way. Um, we do regard it as essential, if we're going to have high standards, that people who specialize in Buddhism, that is, for instance, become gradu graduate students in the subject, 
and write theses, they must study through the original languages. If they're doing something philological, something based on text, they must be able to read those texts in the original language. If they're studying Buddhist society, the anthropology of Buddhism, the politics of a Buddhist society, or whatever, they must be able to read the modern documents or talk to people in the original language. And that's, of course, very demanding. And in practice, nowadays, means that people will still have to specialize in the end in one particular area of Buddhism. In the United States, where it's possible to get scholarships to go on and be a graduate student for many years, you can still command a wider range because when you finish studying Chinese and go on and do Japanese or whatever and so on, that isn't possible in Britain under financing conditions. However, although people will inevitably specialize in one particular area, it is entirely our, our stated aim in our ac uh, academic program that you will always be able to re relate the particular branch of Buddhism that you're studying to the tradition, the Buddhist tradition as a whole. And that we're e equally interested in studying books, texts, <coughs> and in studying people, Buddhist, the social science of Buddhism, and indeed the politics. One of the things for which we're trying to raise funds now uh, we, is we hope a, sort of a, a program named after Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, who, as you, I'm sure you know, uh, was the wife of Michael Aris, the Tibetologist, a good friend of mine, who was here at Oxford, and um, is, of course, herself a devout Buddhist, and we would like to have a, a, a program, including fellowships and studentships, for the study of Buddhist ethics and uh, society and politics. And uh, that's one of, one of our aims. Let me just very briefly uh, run through how we are set up organizationally. First, let me tell you that if you're interested in all this, we have a website, www.ocbs.org. That is OCBS, that's for the Oxford Center of Buddhist Studies. And we have another website, www.sowide, that's so-wide, w-i-d-e.org. That's because we have got a society for the wider understanding of the Buddhist tradition. That is another charity that my friend Jeff Bamford and I founded. You see, if we confine ourselves to the Oxford Center for Buddhist Studies, there are all sorts of things that institutions of Oxford University in the narrow sense does not do, including such things very close, you would think, to the heart of Oxford as teaching continue, continuing education. And if I may just give you some examples of the sorts of things that we've already done, never mind the ones we would like to do. Um, I've taught year in, year out since my retirement at the Department of Continuing Education, things about Buddhism, um, and every year I give an intensive course in the Pali language, uh, the, early, the language of the early Buddhist texts. I guarantee in this course, to everybody's astonishment, that you can, uh, the course is for total beginners. You are not supposed to know a single word of the language or know anything about it when you come, and that in 12 days of intensive work, I will enable you to read the Pali texts, using, of course, the normal dictionaries and grammars, the normal aids that one would have. I've so far run this course four times, 
And uh, in simple fact, I didn't regard myself as boasting particularly, but every single person who's taken the tap, of course, has, uh, has said it was a total success and they had an absolutely marvelous time. We were all exhausted, of course, after 12 days. Um, but I have to do it that way because people have come from Australia, Japan, Hong Kong, apparently all over the world to take this course. And um, it's, it's, I think, a very effective way of teaching languages, actually, to be very intensive courses. I only hope that when the people go away, they keep it up. Because if they don't, of course, it will slip away quite soon. But, uh, so, uh, I mean, this course, we teach this course for nothing. Um, then, other things that we've done, for instance, uh, we have founded, one of our trustees, typically speaking, has founded an international association of Buddhist universities. There was no such thing. And this enables Buddhist universities to communi communicate with each other and start to have some sense of corporate identity. And when we set about founding this, nobody seemed to know how many Buddhist universities there were in the world. There turned out to be about 60 in China, for example. And another association of the universities of Theravada Buddhism, and again, they can, this can help to raise standards. They can uh, teach, uh, exchange teachers, examiners, and that sort of thing. Many of you will know that in 1956, um, an Indian political leader called Mr. Ambedkar, uh, who was what was called an untouchable, there are various more polite terms for it, but that's uh, the term these days is usually Dalit, which means crushed. Um, uh, 21, 22% of the Indian population are untouchables. And Mr. Ambedkar, who was the leader of the Untouchables, publicly converted to Buddhism and encouraged his followers to do likewise. Um, for, he then, unfortunately, just quite coincidentally, died rather shortly after that, in the same year. There are now at least 8 million uh, followers of Mr. Ambedkar, that is, Ambedkar Buddhists in India. And, for example, the Prime Minister of the largest state in India, UP, Uttar Pradesh, a lady called Mayavati is an Ambedkar Buddhist. She is of untouchable origins, and she is a Buddhist. And among other things, she has founded a Buddhist university. But it only exists on paper, because the people there, the untouchables, typically were very uneducated. In fact, the vast majority of them were illiterate. Um, there are very, very few um, uh, Ambedkarite intellectuals indeed, if one could say even any. And so these people don't know what to do when they say, here are a few million uh, just going to found the university. So one of the things that we can do is help them write syllabuses, write bibliographies, tell them what sort of things they're doing. This is all a little tricky because I found on the occasion of the Dalai Lama's visit to Oxford. Some of you will know that on the 30th day this year, the Dalai Lama visited Ox Oxford, and it fell to me to be the host of the Dalai Lama. Um, indeed, uh, in every sense, I mean, we had to pay for all the all expenses and hire the Sheldonian and so on and so forth, but it was a tremendous success. However, I found afterwards that um, because we had mentioned that we were going to help the Ambedkar Buddhists in India, certain of the more distinguished visitors, maybe only a very small number, I wasn't told, but I got a letter of complaint from an authority in the university, that it was thought that we were proselytizing Buddhism. 
we are, it's a very old-fashioned term, which I like to use of myself, I'm a complete secularist. Um, I don't think that the study of Buddhism in any way means that you have to proselytize it. That was certainly not our intention. But to supply information which can be used in a university or a school system is certainly not proselytizing the religion. So we are all the time on a difficult tightrope there, because of course, on the other hand, we can't, uh, <laughs> we have to be polite to Buddhists, and we can't say, yes, yes, we, we, we're quite interested in looking at you under a mic microscope, and we think you're very odd specimens, and it's all rubbish. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's quite uh, difficult, in a way, running a center which is connected with a religion like that. Anyway, we have also been given money uh, in, the, in the name of something called the Kelsey Foundation. This is after a very eminent living Tibetan monk um, who has great, great many followers in California and elsewhere. And we will have a nice program by which a distinguished traditional scholar, some Tibetan monk, uh, will come and spend a few weeks in Oxford. Of course, you can only choose people who are fluent in English. But he will teach about his traditional, and with his traditional methods of teaching, and we hope will, we will learn from him, and he in turn will learn from us. I say he, it might occasionally be a nun, but there are not very many nuns who would be eligible for such a thing. The Oxford Center has also started publishing, in fact it's already published nine volumes of a monograph series of books about Buddhism. Now all of this, uh, is, of course, an attempt to impress you with the, what the, uh, with the two facts of, the, of what we are doing. Now, what is the usefulness of this in the modern world? Just five more minutes or so before we, I ask questions. But I mentioned two organizations, the Oxford Center for Buddhist Studies and the, uh, and the Society for the Wider Understanding of the Buddhist Tradition. There's a third one, www.oxfordmindfulness.org Oxfordmindfulness, with no punctuation, .org Now, if you know anything about Buddhism, you will know that the Buddha was very emphatic that everything about, about us comes from our minds. That essentially we are our minds, because it is our minds that have our experiences, and we are our experiences. The Buddha saw the world as entire, as constantly changing, never static for a moment, and that is because our consciousness is constantly changing, our experience is constantly changing. And we are our experience, we cannot in, in a way ever get, out, get outside that. Um, for the Buddha, whether the world, in the way that Western philosophers argue between um, idealists and realists, I mean, is this table really out there, or is it only in my mind? The question doesn't really arise for the Buddha. The Buddha says, I experience the table, good. I can experience, you tell me, that you experience the table, good. That's all we need to know. We don't need to ask a question about ontology, about do things exist, beyond the fact that we experience them or don't experience them. It's all a matter of experience. And the first verse in a very famous Buddhist collection of verses, Manupu Bhangama Dhamma, goes, so all the, every, everything, all, all phenomena 
are preceded by mind. And mind is their leader, they consist of mind. They consist of thinking, not mind as an object, but thinking would perhaps be a better translation to emphasize that it's a verb. But we're thinking all the, all the time. So that is why um, the Buddha says that the foundation of true religion, of course, the absolutely dispensable foundation is morality. And until you have morality, it's no good trying to go any further. If you try to meditate or go further in other ways and you are not moral, you will come a cropper. So morality, and therefore, for instance, I would not have approved of the way that meditation classes now spring up who will take anybody just to come in and start meditating. In the Buddhist tradition, that's a very dangerous thing to do until you have purged your mind of mental impurities, of, of, of vice, in other words. Um, you don't know how, you cannot be taught how to meditate properly. But <clears throat> after you have acquired morality, to a fairly high degree, you meditate. And it's it also, I think, quite famous that the Buddha taught several different styles and types of meditation, of which the most distinctively Buddhist is this thing which is often translated mindfulness, that is, being constantly aware. Mindfulness is really the same as awareness. It's just somehow become fashionable or usual to use that word in a Buddhist context. But aware of everything, both within yourself, within your mind and body, insofar as is possible, and in your environment. And by becoming aware also of what is going on inside myself, I become more aware of what perhaps is going on in you, which is another basic requirement of morality, because you must treat everybody as you wish to be treated yourself. And how do you know what that is unless you know something about your own wishes and how they arise? So the, the tradition of mindfulness is very, very important in, in Buddhism. And it's suddenly springing up all over the world, isn't it? Your new mindfulness centers seem to be opening uh, almost every week in some country or other. Now, we have a professor here in the Department of Psychology, Professor Mark Williams. Um, who did very, very successful work with mindfulness therapy. Um, he treated severely depressed patients. And uh, the treatments beyond known for severe depression were on the one hand drugs, and on the other hand various talking therapies, mainly of the kind called cognitive CPT, cognitive behavior therapy. And they had a fairly good rate of success but they had a very, very high rate of recidivism. After people were cured, within one year, 70% were back. And Dr. Mark Williams, uh, with all the proper scientific tests, did large-scale experiments where he took people with his mindfulness, and he discovered that he could reduce the rate to 36%, from 70% to 36%, almost exactly halved. This has very much impressed the National Health Service, and they have given him for a pilot project. So this is also becoming, or has just become rather, a recognized independent center of Oxford University. It's called the Oxford Mindfulness Center, OMC. And we, as people who know about Buddhism, are very much involved. Jeff Bamford and I are trustees of this, and it's also, as it were, under the Society for the Wider Understanding of the Buddhist Tradition. 
So we are very interested in the application of the Buddhist tradition to helping people quite directly to mitigate the troubles and sorrows of their lives. And we're also, of course, very interested in an area in which we have far less power to influence, but Rome was not built in a day, in applying Buddhist ethics and principles to international relations, as, for instance, the relations between India and China, two countries with an overwhelmingly Buddhist tradition in their history. And even they are getting quite interested in cooperating in some ways. There's a thing called the Nalanda Project. Nalanda was the ancient Buddhist university in eastern India. And through the foreign minister of Singapore, George Yeo, there's been a committee formed, edited by the, headed by the Nobel Prize winner Amartya Shen, uh, to try and set up a kind of Buddhist university there. And they would not just be interested in mindfulness. And the idea would not be <coughs> to study Buddhism as a subject alongside medieval history, French literature or something, but to have a Buddhist uh, take on things. And that is something that is not airy-fairy talk. That is really possible. And of course, one of the foundational planks of that is to take another famous Buddhist verse very, very seriously. And that is that hatred is never quelled by hatred. That does not exist in this world. Hatred can only be quelled. It does, it's often to say by love. But the Buddha doesn't go so far. It's not sentimental. Hatred can only be quelled by non-hatred, by adopting neutral attitude. So I've touched on many aspects of Buddhism and how we hope to teach it here in Boston. And there's, uh, I've left 20 minutes for questions and discussion. I assume any question, however silly. Uh, there are no silly questions. <laughs> what I was interested in is the relation, you spoke about Buddhism, is it not related to other religions? And specifically, did it not arise from a Hindu tradition? And do you feel that somehow that philosophy has moved across Persia and influenced the development of Christianity? Well, let me, the first half is much easier to deal with, but not terribly briefly. The Buddha lived in India in the fifth, fifth century BC. Hinduism as we know it now, did not exist at that time. Um, all that we know about the ancient, about ancient Indian religion was the religion of the priestly caste, which is never more than 5% of the population, and in most areas less. Uh, and indeed, only the males of that priestly caste, the Brahmins. And a great deal of the Buddha's preaching was directed specifically at those Brahmins. Um, and he adopted an interesting tactic he used to say, you have absolutely all the right ideals. The trouble is that you don't live up to them. <laughs> um, he had, uh, this was relevant to the very last thing that I was saying about Buddhism and the possibility of using it in international relations. The Buddha had a wonderful technique, which later acquired a technical term called skill in means. People would come along and propound some position to him, often belligerently. And the Buddha never said no. And he never said, you're wrong. He said, yes. But don't you think also? <laughs> and he, what he did was he continually 
took what people said, in particular the Brahmins, but also the Jains, another religion of that time, and infused it with new meaning. A very good example is the word karma, which is in the English language. Now, the Brahmins believed that everything depended on correct ritual behavior. The word for a ritual act is karma. Actually, etymologically, it just means an act. And the Buddha said, of course, karma is all important. Everything depends on your karma. But by karma, he added, I mean intention. That's very much like saying, by left, I mean right, or by right, I mean black. Uh, it's, of course, nonsense. In one sense, it's nonsense. It's a pure tactic. So that everything you see for the Buddha, everything is in the mind. So the Buddha. So, of course, there was an old Brahminical tradition with some in very interesting thoughts in it, and the Buddha <coughs> took off from that, agreed with some of it, disagreed with some of it. That tradition said that the ultimate reality was an unchanging core, or you can say soul, to the universe, which was an un the same unchanging core or soul existed in each individual, and that salvation lay in realizing the identity of the individual's unchanging core or soul with that of the universe. The macrocosm and the microcosm fitted perfectly. This, the Buddha completely denied. He said, there is nothing unchanging in us. From this, it became known, correctly in the Indian sense, that Buddhism is the religion which teaches there is no soul. It is absolutely true, but you have to understand that it's soul in the sense in which people use the word in his environment. It has nothing to do with how the word soul is used in Christianity or 21st century Britain. Soul simply means there is nothing in the individual which is unchanging. We are, and he analyzed the individual note with great psychological subtlety into several streams of what's happening, of perceptions, feelings, and so on. The individual is a bundle of these, or rather, is a set of these streams, streams of events. We are all, at every moment, streams of events, but there is nothing in it unchanging. The, now, these streams are streams. They are not random. Everything, as in a stream, as in a process normally, everything is to some extent conditioned by what went before. It's not random, but it's also not determined. If it were wholly determined, morality would be impossible, as we all know. If there was a free will, you can't have morality. So that's how the Buddha figured karma. It's a very sophisticated thought, and it does take off from the Brahmin thing, but mainly by denying it. Now, Buddhism then, I mean, the Buddha's thought was so superior to many of the other thoughts that were going around at that time, that inevitably, over the centuries, it influenced Hindu thought enormously beginning with the Bhagavad Gita, it very much influenced by Buddhism. So the, in, the Indians like to say, and you could well offend an Indian if by denying it, if you're not careful, that of course Buddhism is just an offshoot of Hinduism or Buddhism is just a branch of Hinduism. That's terribly oversimplified and it's only about 20% true. <laughs> the other thing about, if you asked about Buddhist things coming, influencing the West, very little is known. It's quite possible that monasticism was invented only once, and that Buddhist monasticism 
uh, was known about by the traders who crossed the Red Sea and so on, and did you know the Christian monasticism began in Egypt in the third, fourth century of AD, and that could be because they knew about Buddhist monasticism and so on. But, uh, and certain stories certainly migrated, but the evidence for Buddhist influence on Christianity is pretty thin, not massive at all. You began right at the very front by saying that there are three great world religions. Yes. And numerically, Buddhism came number one, Christianity second, and Islam third. I have always been given to understand by those people who do actually study Buddhism is that it is not, repeat, not a religion in the normal sense. Why? Because they do not believe there is a single god as does the Christians and as do the um, Muslims. And it is a philosophy maybe very good philosophy, but not a religion. So could you clarify that, please? Uh, yes, well, it's like red rag go bull here. Uh, I, I, I've spent my adult life very largely talking to Buddhists. I've never found it went down very well with them if you told them you haven't got a religion. <laughs> Why don't we let them tell us whether they have a religion? Um, they all think they have, I'm afraid. Of course, the word religion is an English word, and some of them don't speak English. And they may say that they have a tradition, or a holy tradition, or something like that. So, in a way, it's quibbling about words. But certainly, Buddhists behave about their religion as other people. Well, I'm not talking about such questions of tolerance and so on, but centrally, they seem to think this is what they live by, this is the most important things in their life, and above all, this is the soteriology. Soteriology means that, you know, the way to salvation. The Buddha preached the way to salvation. Uh, Muhammad preached the way to salvation. Jesus preached the way to salvation. So did Moses and so on. Now, if you define a religion as a way to salvation, there is absolutely no argument about the fact. What the Buddha preached mainly was a way to salvation to, uh, by through understanding certain things. So, uh, why should we because we happen to live in a place where monotheism is so entrenched, say that unless you accept monotheism, we can't let you into the club. We're up or in a minority. Just because we're richer or more powerful doesn't really entitle us to impose that kind of thing on other people. There's no reason why a religion should be monotheistic, and lots of religions, in fact, there aren't. No, I'm, I'm not arguing at all that religion no, no. should be monotheistic. It's just that I thought Buddhists did not believe that there was a god or many several gods. I thought they believed that ultimately after X reincarnations, you're, you became so enlightened that your soul disappeared into the general ether. Uh, sorry, I'm that's afraid that's all rather wrong. I'm terrible, it's all rather wrong. Firstly, you can attain, uh, your soul doesn't disappear, you never had one. <laughs> you can't possibly disappear because it's the only... Secondly, the Buddha encourages you to attain enlightenment now, in the, I mean, preferably tomorrow, you know. There is that, just as Jesus also wanted you to, uh, you know, to attain the kingdom of heaven as quickly as possible. Um, it's not a question of... If, if you would have to take several lives to do it, that just means because you're not practically good at it, or you're not very keen, or something like that. <laughs> so, and thirdly, Buddhists certainly do believe in gods, but gods have no place, to, no part to play, and this is stunning for a Christian, no part to play in salvation. Gods are thought to exist, they think, they believe in gods very much in the way that we believe in protons. 
They're just elements of the universe. They're kind of supermen. They are subject, however, as, as they are sentient beings, unlike protons, as they are sentient beings, they are subject to all the same rules of the universe, particularly moral rules. So if a god misbehaves, a god will in the end suffer for that misbehavior. If a god behaves well, a god will in the end do better because of that behavior, because we create ourselves morally. And when I say we, I don't mean all just human beings, but all creatures with sufficiently developed minds or consciousnesses to be able to know the difference between right and wrong and act accordingly. So I was told spontaneously, not in any way elicited, twice when I did my early fieldwork in Sri Lanka, two different people said to me, gods have nothing to do with religion. <laughs> so, for one um, embarking on a study of Buddhism, um, would you recommend uh, learning a language of any particular tradition, for instance, the Pali texts, the earliest, presumably the most authentic, or do they all have the same core, that in a different language texts? And if, um, is it possible anyway to do a thing in English um, and, and, and compare different philosophical schools within Buddhism in English? Um, and if so, how to get to the text? Yes. Well, thank you very much for asking that question. I didn't want to be an intellectual snob or to scare people off when I said that if you want to study Buddhism in depth, you will, in the end, have to learn the Buddhist language. Of course, you can learn an awful lot through English translations, although the number of Buddhist texts compared to the number of translations, I'm afraid, is very great. I mean, there aren't nearly enough, to, and many of them have not been translated, and even more have not been translated well. But the Pali Canon has been entirely translated into English, slightly variable standard, but, but much of it fairly well. Whether you can study Buddhist philosophy, really, uh, that, and there isn't an, an answer to that question, but obviously in philosophy it is necessary to be very precise about the meanings of terms. And after all, we're dealing with not just a language, but a culture which is very far from ours. So, for instance, there are several different Buddhist words which we could translate mind or thinking, but they don't all have exactly the same meanings and implications. When you get to that kind of subtlety, it really is very difficult, and at least, even if you study it in English, you actually have enough of the same Pali that you can see which word is he talking about here, what kind of mind is this, what kind of thinking is that. Etc. So that, that is a little difficult. I think it's a very good idea, however, to read as much as you can of, uh, of, of the stuff in English first, certainly. Unfortunately, I cannot honestly, I, I, I think a Buddhist would give you a different answer to the one I'm going to give you now. So far as I can see, it's not surprising, is it? The Buddha said, all confounded things are impermanent. Everything in this world changes. Buddhism has had 2,500 years to change, and even in very, already in ancient times, it moved from India to Sri Lanka to Tibet to China to And of course, the Chinese have their own philosophical and religious traditions already. It did change a lot along the way. It really did. And for instance, if you read Korean Zen, you won't really recognize early Buddhism in it at all. If you're at the end of a long line of changes in Korean Zen, it's very beautiful and very interesting. It's extremely different. 
So I, I, can, I see the Buddhist tradition as one, but in the sense that the sort of estuary is one, or you know, a tree with a huge number of branches is one. But if you come in at different points, I'm afraid you will be quite bewildered. And the trouble is that some of the books, like there's a book which you get sometimes in hotel bedrooms, a Buddhist Bible, and they just give you an extract in English of this, an extract of that, and so they don't say where they come from, they don't say how they relate, which indeed would take a lot of explaining, and you'll be totally bewildered because it contradicts itself all the time. It's not easy. Could you say something about the, um, how these early texts, how close they are to the actual line? Historically, to the life of the whole of the Buddha, how, I mean, because yes. with, with the Quran and with, with the New Testament, I, I certainly can. I'm, I'm very glad again to have that opportunity. Um, I I regard it as um, either a renegade or a simpleton or something, because um, I am convinced that the uh, that the at least most of the really generally recognised to be the most important early texts are indeed very close indeed to the Buddha, um, even though the Buddha lived in an illiterate society, nothing was written down at that time, and we are dependent on an oral tradition for the first century or so. And the thing is that if this is not a matter of faith at all. My great contribution to Buddhist studies, and I think it's going to be regarded as pretty important, is that I have located about uh, 10 places where the Buddha is referring directly to Brahminical texts, and two or three of those illusions are fantastically important, and give us a completely new insight into what the Buddha meant, because he is, again, just, it's not with a single word karma, but he is taking, for instance, a creation myth from the Veda and retelling it ironically. And so now, the Buddhist tradition, of course, the, the commentators, and the commentators on the commentators, they didn't read Sanskrit. They didn't know about the Brahmin texts of ancient India. They're totally oblivious of this. So the Buddhist tradition has studied Buddhism without studying its historical context. The same has been true, I'm afraid, of the Western tradition since Buddhism was discovered in the 19th century. And perhaps there it's my good luck that I was given a job as professor of Sanskrit when I wanted to study Buddhism in Pali. So it turned out that I knew something about both sides. And I've discovered this intertextuality, these so this, re and this really does prove that the Buddha knew certain texts and was responding to them. You see, if you go to America, they will say, well, why bother with Pali? Because these texts also exist in Chinese translation, made much later. Ah, but in the Chinese translation, they, they, they have not preserved the memory of the Sanskrit. The words have been changed, so they no longer reads like a quotation and so on. They too, when they translated these texts into Chinese, had no idea that the Buddha was actually quoting or parodying Brahminical texts. So I think that my research has really reinstated the importance of the part of Pali as being something to, uh, of course, we can never be certain, you know, detail after detail. You have to do it, build the edifice stone by stone, I'm afraid. But at least we've, you know, we've made a beginning there. What about the afterlife? Is there such a thing in Buddhism? Uh, well, yes, you've got an afterlife at the moment. After your afterlife, the previous life. Ah. Uh, uh, Buddhism <laughs> believes in, like all Indian, all religions indigenous to India, believes in rebirth. And that's, of course, why it's necessary to attain salvation. 
and stop being reborn. So, uh, I mean, it's quite obvious, of course, I haven't given you even the, the basics of Buddhist doctrine, but had I done that, because I couldn't have done anything else in the hour. But yes, you're, you're, you're reborn. When you, when you die, you will be reborn, and you will carry through the ethical inheritance of what you, that carries on. The, pros, the ethical process. So, if you were very cruel in the last life, you may be reborn in a, as a tiger or something. Or if you're very annoying indeed, you may be reborn as a mosquito in this life. On the other hand, if you're good, but you're not really good enough yet, you'll be reborn in some very favorable situation in heaven or on earth. Can you explain a little bit about meditation? Because it seems that meditation, Buddhism believes in awareness and sort of hyper awareness. But when they meditate, they seem to turn themselves into completely unaware, almost like zombies. No, that's quite, sorry. There, I said that the Buddha had at least two types, well, several types of meditation in the early Buddhist texts. And there, there's one of turning in on yourself, and that's right, and you know, not noticing what's going on. That's a special exercise. And it is said, you know, that will, is, it's a bit like the weightlifting exercises before you, you become an athlete to get your muscles into it, to start controlling your mind successfully. You will never reach any of the crucial Buddhist realizations by doing that, but it may, and they also say that it's not essential to do that kind of meditation, but many people do it um, as a kind of, it's a sort of breakthrough reality, if you like. So, so there's so many, but you, you were early. Um, yes. Just to return to the question on, on God, uh, I noticed you said that many Buddhists believe there are many gods. Uh, Almost all Buddhists. Yeah. Um, I'm just interested uh, what they what uh, think of God, because uh, from whatever little I know, I thought he was not interested in the question of God. Well, exactly. Gods have nothing to do with religion. But did he admit You're absolutely right. He didn't. I mean, so the Buddha, when he was asked about gods, he says, well, evidently people believe in gods, and he left it there. But you see, the soul is unchanging. There's nothing unchanging in you. So that when you say that if there is no soul, I mean, it, 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 it doesn't figure. I mean, it, so it's not like you've got a sort of little blob or disc or something which goes, it accompanies you all the time through this life and then might go on into something else. You are not the same as you were an hour ago. Your mind is not the same, your body is not the same. The change is quite slow in the body, very fast in the mind, the Buddhists say. The mind changes far, far faster than the body. So what is it that reincarnates? But your moral, your moral, your moral intentions, your, the, the moral state of your mind. Does that change? All the time, yes. If you have kind thoughts, kind intentions, and so on, it becomes kinder. The more often you practice a virtue or a vice, they build up virtuous and vicious circles. So if you are, the first time that you give a thousand pounds, it hurts. But the second time, it's much easier. The third time it's easier still, you become just a generous personality by doing it often. That's, that's the Buddhist idea. And that moral personality that you have, that goes through a series of lives. It changes all the time. There is nothing in It's a matter of Buddhist dogma. Whether you believe it or not, it's not my concern. But it's a matter of Buddhist dogma that there is nothing 
unchanging in this world. Nothing. I mean, you could be very statistically involved and say, well, abstractions or something. But the Buddha, the Buddha believed that Buddhism would change all the time. And it did. But <laughs> <laughs> you, you said at the outset you weren't a Buddhist, and you, there were one or two things that he said that you didn't agree with. Could you pick out one? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I don't, I, I don't believe in the doctrine of karma because I don't believe that the universe is a just place. But according to Buddhism, ultimately the universe is a just place. Because in the end, virtue is brings its own reward. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. I have a much more I much have a much blacker view than the Buddha. <laughs> Statue or venerating a statue may be good for your state of mind. 
say just a little about Mahayana and other brands of lesser land in the greater world? Well, I haven't, <laughs> I'm afraid the answer to that is in a sense no, because I haven't yet told you very much about the early Buddhism, so you know, how Mahayana differs from it. But what, is, what characterizes the Mahayana very much is um, the idea that, well, firstly, the Buddha is not who we think of as a historical person, wasn't a historical person, he was on the principle. And there's a docetic heresy, as the Christians would call it, namely that the Buddha who appeared to be on earth was just a sort of created for practical thing, you know, as a practical measure to entice people to Buddhism or something. But they believe in people bodhisattvas, that is future Buddhas. And the idea is that people should try to become future Buddhas. For the earlier Buddhists, the, there's only one Buddha in the world at a time and at great intervals. Whereas for Mahayanists, there are an infinite number of Buddhas, the universe being infinitely large. And that actually has all sorts of knock-on effects on the doctrine. I don't think that's <laughs> I mean, it's an impossible question. 